All right, Isaiah chapter number 36 tonight, and what we're going to do is read all of chapter 36 into chapter number 37, then we're going to pause and read chapter 38, (laughs) then we're going to jump back to chapter number 37. I'll explain why that is here in just a moment. But this portion of the book of Isaiah, these four chapters, are a historical portion. They are a historical narrative. They're also contained in 2 Kings chapter number 18. We trust that it was the hand of Isaiah. We understand these are the words of God and the words of the Holy Spirit, but we trust that it was the hand of Isaiah that recorded it there in the book of 2 Kings and also included it in his prophecy because of how pertinent it is to the message that God had for Israel and for the entire world. And so this portion of Scripture is divided into three sections. There is the ruin of the Assyrians in chapters 36 and 37. Then there is the resurrection of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah doesn't die, but figuratively he goes down to death and is raised up miraculously by the Lord. And then chapter 39 contains his reception of the Babylonians. As you read that, you might think to yourself, well, preacher, that ain't got a thing to do with me. But you'll find that there is a practical application as well as some far-reaching pictures and types that are contained in this portion of Scripture. Now, what we'll do is read chapter 36, and I'll make some passing comments as we walk through it to just set the framework. But to give you a little bit of an idea of what's happening, Hezekiah is the king over the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, the Assyrian Empire is dominant on the world stage. And the Assyrians, after years of threats and years of of sort of, uh, you know, antagonizing, has finally uh, marched an army all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, is not with this army. He is back in a place called Lachish, which is another city in Judah, and he's finishing up some of their expedition there. But anticipating him arriving at Jerusalem, he sends the bulk of his army ahead with three generals, one of whom is going to feature large in our text, a man by the name of Rabshakeh. So let's begin reading in verse number one. I'll make some comments as we make our way through. And I'll go ahead and tell you my intention is to read all this, set the framework, set the context, and then do just a few moments of teaching as I make application of it at the end of our lesson tonight. The Bible says in verse number one, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now, who is this Rabshakeh? His name means the chief butler or the uh, chief officer. And it's likely that he was somebody that was high up in in the court of Sennacherib, uh, certainly one of his generals and one of his emissaries. And so he's sent with this army to intimidate and to lay siege to Jerusalem. The Bible says in verse 3, Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. So this is sort of Hezekiah's cabinet, his representatives. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt 
to all that trust in Him. By the way, let me pause there and say it was interesting. I was talking to uh, our youth pastor. This has been months ago when we were going through this first time, and he was talking about a coin that they had found dating back to the uh, realm and the reign of Hezekiah and said that on that uh, coin there was certain Egyptian hieroglyphs and Egyptian symbolism. You say, well, why would that be? Well, because Hezekiah had made league with the Egyptians in hoping to stay the influence and the invasion of the Assyrians. And so here Rabshakeh, he's mocking them for that, saying, you're trusting in Egypt, but Egypt is going to betray you. Verse 7, he says, but if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar? You know, the world never does understand Bible Christianity. And he's saying, you as Hezekiah, you have gone and torn down all these high places and these altars. You've offended your God. But Hezekiah knew better than that. Uh, the Lord wanted his name to be worshipped from Jerusalem, from the temple. But here we find the enemy, the foe, and what he's doing is trying to sow seeds of doubt in the mind of God's people concerning their conviction and their separation unto him. You know, the devil still does that today. When you take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil will always come around and say, well, aren't you afraid you're being too hardline? Aren't you afraid you're being too fanatic? Aren't you afraid you're alienating people? The enemies always work the same. And here we find the enemy of the people of God working in just this very way. He says in verse 8, Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part, to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? He says, and am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. Here again we have propaganda. No doubt Hezekiah and all of Israel would have been aware of the fact that Assyria was the arm of God's judgment in the world and even upon Israel. And now he's taking and twisting that to suggest that he is in some way a servant of Jehovah, a servant of the Lord in what he's doing, and that by placing their faith in God and withstanding the Assyrian invasion, that they were somehow acting contrary to God's will. I'll tell you this, man, the devil's a liar. I know Rabshka was a human being. I understand he was a man just like you or me, but he certainly is the voice of the will of Satan in this passage. And listen, Satan is a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And here he's spinning lies to try to warp and to try to twist the truth to affect the minds of God's people. He says in verse, or it says in verse number 11, Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joath unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it and speak not unto us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. They said, if you're here to treat with us, then talk with us. Don't use these intimidation tactics against our people. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Boy, I tell you, he's, he's got a silver tongue, doesn't he? He's saying, if you'll just compromise with me, if you'll just work with me, then I'll even let you stay here and you can go on living here. Life will go on just the same as it's always gone on if you'll just make a compromise with me. This isn't my lesson tonight, but I just can't refrain from pointing out how this echoes the lives of Satan even today. The first thing he says is, if you don't follow me, I'll destroy you. When that doesn't work, he says, well, if you follow me, nothing will change in your life. Everything will be exactly like it is. And in fact, one day it'll even be better. We know these are lies that he's speaking to them, just like Satan's lies are lies that he speaks to us. And so Rabshakeh, he's trying to manipulate them, and he's using propaganda to try to beat them into submission to his will. He says in verse number 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Now again, he continues to threaten him and say, You know, no one's ever done it before. You won't be able to do it now. Now, I've got in your notes, and I want you to notice it because we're going to sort of follow this along, a timeline of the events in these four chapters. The first one we've just read, Rabshakeh's arrival and defiance against the children of Israel. Let me remind you what the theme of the book of Isaiah is. Remember, it's Isaiah's name. You can't get far from it here when you study the book of Isaiah. It's God is my salvation. And here we have at the very heart of this book this question being asked again. Does God save? Does God deliver? We could ask this question, where does deliverance come from? Here is the voice of the enemy proclaiming to them that God is helpless to deliver them. What will happen? What will they do? Well, we find the next point in the timeline, and that's Hezekiah's prayer and God's answer. Verse 22 says, Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And it came to pass, when the king Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Boy, he did the right thing. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is the day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Very common Hebrew saying. They're saying we're right here at the, at the moment of crises, and it looks like we're going to fail. It says, it may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove, excuse me, the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. And I want you to underscore that in your mind, that phrase, 
Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard say concerning Terhakah, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. Let me pause right there and make a few statements about this. This presents the third point in our timeline, the rumor and Rabshakeh's departure. So Isaiah sends word to uh, Hezekiah that God has heard, God has answered, and that God is going to put fear into the heart of Rabshakeh when he hears a rumor, and it's going to cause him to turn around and go back to the king of Assyria because he's afraid that he is having an army beset against him. When he gets back, he finds out that the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he's left Lachish, marched further south to Libna. And when he gets there, they hear the rumor that the king of Ethiopia has an army that is getting ready to march against them. Now, this may not seem like much to you, but you understand that in this moment, Hezekiah comes to God, pleads for his help. God answers and literally removes the enemy, at least the voice of the enemy, immediately from their doorstep. Now, there's a reason I paused right here in the reading, because... Chapter number 38 presents to us another portion of this passage of Scripture. We've titled it The Resurrection of Hezekiah. But I'm of the belief, and uh, you know, other people are welcome to disagree, and I, I will admit there's room even probably for different perspectives about this, different opinions about this, but I'm of the opinion that the events that happen in chapter 38 chronologically fall right in this moment. And I'll explain why after we're done reading it. Look over in chapter 38. I want you to notice this chapter on Hezekiah's sickness and his recovery. Notice it begins by saying, in those days. In other words, while this conflict was going on, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Let me pause there. That's part of the reason that I believe that these events fall in the portion of Scripture that we cease reading in chapter number 37. It's obvious from the context that the Assyrians still have laid besiege to the city of Jerusalem. When we get to the end of chapter 37, you'll see here in a few moments, uh, they're gone. They've left. God has delivered them. But in this moment, the king of Assyria is still threatening them. It says in verse number 7, and this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which is gone down in the sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backward. So the sun returned at ten degrees by which degrees it was gone down. 
the writing of Hezekiah, <coughs> king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. So this is his personal testimony when he went through this sickness. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. I reckon till morning that as a lion, so he will, will he break all my bones. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me and himself hath done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Did you notice the transition? Earlier he's saying my life's done. It's over. But then in verse number 15, there's a change. He petitions the Lord and he says, The Lord hath both spoken unto me and himself hath done it. Done what? Healed him. And he says, I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. In other words, in humility and self-reflection. O Lord, by these things shall men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. That's a key phrase. I want you to remember it. Hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The Father to the children shall make known thy truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now notice verse 21 22. For the Lord had said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord. That last phrase is important. All this is set within the context of two things. The Assyrian army sitting outside the gates of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's desire to go up unto the house of the Lord. I want you to look back with me at chapter number 37. Let's pick up our reading. So the king of Assyria hears this rumor and he realizes he needs to muster his army and consolidate it in one place quickly if he's going to defeat the king of Ethiopia, whom he believes is now marching on him. So what's he going to do? Well, the Bible says this in verse 9 of chapter 37. When he heard it, when he heard the rumor, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So Rabshakeh left the bulk of the army outside the gates of Jerusalem. Sennacherib says, we need the army back. We've got to uh, consolidate and muster our forces. So he sends a letter to Hezekiah by the hand of Rabshakeh to try to intimidate him and threaten him into submission so that he can quickly subjugate Jerusalem and get his army back in position for the coming onslaught. This is what he said. Thus shall ye speak, verse 10, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given unto the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden, which were in Telesar? 
Where are the king? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Isaac? Now remember, all this has been said in a letter. It's been sent from the king of Assyria to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up unto the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline Thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open Thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore have they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Let's pause for just a moment. You understand what's just happened. Hezekiah is sick. He receives this letter. He needs to hear from God. He's begging God to do something. And he goes to Isaiah or sends to Isaiah and says, I'm too sick to approach unto the house of the Lord. What's getting ready to happen to me? Am I getting ready to die? I've prayed and asked God to heal me. Isaiah sends back word and says, no, God is going to heal you. He's heard your prayer. He's heard your repentance. And Hezekiah is raised up from the sickbed and then is able to enter into the house of the Lord and present this letter before the Lord. You might say, well, preacher, I don't see it that way, and that's perfectly fine. Next time you teach Apollo's course, teach it any way you want. But I'm of the opinion that that's how these events fall. And so Hezekiah has prayed and presented this letter before the Lord. Verse number 21, we have Jehovah's answer by Isaiah. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord, and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border, and the forest of his carmel. I have digged and drunk water, with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. This is his boasting, you understand. Hast thou not heard long ago, the Lord says, how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it. Now I have brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste, defend cities into ruinous heat. God says, you did it because I allowed it. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, and as corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know thy abode, he says to Sennacherib, and thy going out and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. Because I rage against me, and my tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. And this shall be a sign unto thee, ye shall eat this year such as groweth of itself. The second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap. 
and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. Now that's both a practical prophecy and it's a typological prophecy. It's both applying to them literally concerning the nation of Israel and their safety and security, but probably also has connotations for Israel in a dispensational sense. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians. Now let me pause and say, I want you to really soak in what this says. The angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. A hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers slain in one night by the sword of God. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. What's Sennacherib going to do now? So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. It came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword. And they escaped in the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, looking back at this timeline, Rabshakeh's arrival and defiance, Hezekiah's prayer and God's answer, the rumor and Rabshakeh's departure goes back to Sennacherib. Sennacherib... Uh, in the meantime, or I guess let's say this, in that same season, Hezekiah falls mortally sick. Sennacherib sends a threatening letter back. When Hezekiah receives it, he prays and seeks the Lord, and he is restored back to his health. Hezekiah enters the temple and presents the letter before the Lord. God answers and destroys the Assyrian army. These are the events as we see them laid out. We could describe them this way in our small outline at the top of your notes. The ruin of the Assyrians, including the initial defiance, chapter 38, the resurrection of Hezekiah, and then the final defeat. And then there's one final portion I want us to notice and read. It's not very long, just eight verses. And then we'll get into our teaching. Look at chapter 39. There's one final event. And it's the reception of a Babylonian emissary. The Bible says at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. So we know this has to be after his recovery. We also know it has to be after the Assyrians were destroyed, because how else would they get into a city that had been laid siege to? And Hezekiah was glad of them. He showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Hezekiah, or Isaiah, excuse me, the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men, and from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Let's pause there for just a moment. Babylon's not an unknown place. Now, Babylon is not seemingly getting ready to be the next great world power. It's true when Isaiah prophesied all the things he did about Babylon, 
that it was a, a miracle of predictive prophecy because nobody could have expected that Babylon would be the very next ones that would dominate the world stage. But Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and you know if you sat through our lessons in the spring, is rife with prophecies concerning the Babylonians. Their cruelty, their brutality, their wickedness, their idolatry, and how that the Babylonians would be used to judge Judah for their rebellion against God. When Hezekiah saw a Babylonian chariot rolling down the road, his antennas should have gone up. He should have stopped and thought, these are not the sort of people I need to let into my home, but he doesn't do that. He lets these men in, he welcomes them, he receives their gift, he honors them, and he gives them a grand tour of all the wonderful things that he has in his house. That's like a mouse, or that's like a, a person giving a mouse a tour of a cheese factory. You understand? The Bible says in verse 4, Then said he, What have they seen in mine house? What Isaiah asked him. Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not chosen. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shalt they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, we've read a large portion of Scripture, made comments on it as we move through it. But the question that remains is, why? Why is this portion of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. In fact, I would say this, from a human perspective, doesn't seem to belong here. The book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. And all the rest of the book of Isaiah, if we can use this terminology, is high poetry in the sense of, of theological prophecy given. It's, it's very rich and very robust in its language. And then here, there's this strange little four-chapter historical narrative that's presented to us. I can see why it belongs in 2 Kings 18. Those are the historical books. But why in the middle of Isaiah did the Holy Spirit prompt the heart of Isaiah to include this portion of history? Well, the reason is because it's not just history. You know, we have a theological term. It's called typology. And typology could maybe, in a rudimentary way, be defined this way, when history becomes prophecy. When things that God has done throughout history, God uses to cast a shadow into the future to paint a picture of things that had not yet come to pass. And all of the Bible is rich with typology. Time would fail me to give examples. We mentioned some on Sunday. But you can go all through the Old Testament and find examples. Adam is a type of, of Christ in his love for his bride, the church. Uh, Isaac is a type of Christ being a submissive son going up to the Mount of Sacrifice. On and on we could go about types in the Old Testament. But these passages of Scripture are also both history, prophecy, and time. With that in mind, let me make just a few passing comments to close out our teaching tonight. I want you to notice three applications of all the stories that we've read. Now the first, because I don't believe we'd be rightly dividing the word of truth if we didn't notice that there is a historic application to this. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we can read this and it is literal, historical, accurate events that happen in the lives of people, and particularly as it applies to the lives of God's people, there is a practical application to be made when we look at the events and how they unfolded. 
For instance, the very first thing that we read about is this interaction between the Assyrians and their besieging of Israel and Hezekiah's faith towards God. And in that story, we find a truth about the power of prayer and the power of faith. Think with me for a moment about the problem that Hezekiah faced. We learn from comparing Scripture with Scripture that he actually had a dual threat that he was facing. There was an external threat. He had a formidable foe that was pouring poison into the minds of him and his uh, followers, his, his uh, you know, uh, servants and, and his citizens, and he was doing everything he could to try to get them to compromise their faith and commitment to God. Can I say we're living in a very similar situation today? In fact, the propaganda has not gotten less. The propaganda has gotten more throughout the ages. The enemy is not just pouring propaganda into our ears through whispers of anxiety and doubt. But everywhere we look, man, every TV, every screen, every song, every radio, everything you look, if you ever really start paying attention, you'll be shocked at the high level of propaganda that is poured into our lives day by day. He has an external threat, a foe that wants to destroy him. We likewise have a foe. We have an enemy, an adversary, the devil, that walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour But he has a second threat. He has an external threat, but he also has an internal threat. And that's his failing flesh. He is a dying man. His flesh is failing him. It would seem from the context, although God doesn't really disclose to us what the sin is, but when Hezekiah repents, God forgives him. God heals him. Hezekiah himself says that God has put my sins behind his back. And so because of some sin in Hezekiah's life, his, some temptation of the flesh that he has yielded to, we find that he is in a place of immense and severe weakness. Man, what a description of the things that we as believers face today. We have an external foe. We have a world system set about and set against us and our living for Christ. But not only the external threat on the outside, but the internal threat of the weakness and infirmity and frailty of our flesh that will fail us every single time. What does Hezekiah do in light of this? Hezekiah was not a perfect man. He was a godly man. One of the great testimonies of his life is that faced by both of these things, here's what he did. He took it to the Lord in prayer. He goes to God and admits his weakness and admits his inability, invokes God's promises, and begs God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. I read these chapters of Scripture and I walk away and there's one theme that sings in my mind and that's that prayer works. We'll pray and seek God. We have a, we have a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. This passage of Scripture just confirms and galvanizes in my heart that the, the major failures of my life are prayer failures and that where I am struggling, I should meet it with prayer. So we see the problem that he faced, and we see the prayer of faith. But then we see the protection of the Lord. We see that God cares and is interested in the lives of His people. God answers in mighty fashion. I love the way, and maybe I wouldn't if I was an Assyrian, but I love the way God answered Hezekiah's prayer. He begins by sending a rumor. We'll say a word about that as we get a little further in the lesson. But the second time, he doesn't send a a rumor, he sends a reckoning. And he destroys 185,000 people that he might deliver his city of Jerusalem. This first episode of Hezekiah and the Assyrians and the siege teaches us a lesson on the power of prayer and of faith. The second episode, Hezekiah's sickness and his restoration, teaches us a lesson about the Lord of life 
and of death. Hezekiah is stricken with this sickness. And it's apparent that this is not him overstating or over-exaggerating the status of his illness because God Himself says through Isaiah, Hezekiah, this sickness is unto death. Set your house in order. You're going to die. What does he do likewise? The Bible tells us, and I love the way the Bible describes it, that he turned to the wall and prayed. It's a reminder to me of what I need to do when I'm faced with things in my life that would present a threat or present calamity. He does two things. I like that he turned to the wall. In other words, he wanted to make sure nobody thought he was turning to somebody. He wanted to make sure that God knew he wasn't talking to anybody except to him. And him turning to the wall was not so much him turning to the wall as it was him turning away from other sources of help, strength, and dependency. I will tell you, God's given us a lot of resources in our life. We ought to avail ourselves of everyone. But never should we allow anything in our life to be a source of strength such that it causes us to cease to depend on the Lord. He turned to the wall, but in doing so, he turned to the Lord. And he said, Lord, you're the only person. You're the one that has the power of life and of death. I'll remind you again that we this doesn't change. It's never changed. God is the only one that has the jurisdiction over life and death. He's the God of life and death. If he can fix that problem, what problem would we have that he could not fix? And so God does a miraculous thing. The Bible tells us that he turned the sundial backwards 15 degrees. And I won't, I'll let your cosmology work that out in your own time. Uh, the Bible says the sun returned in its course. I didn't think it went in courses, but that doesn't matter. It's neither here nor there. What matters is that God literally does a miracle. A miracle of nature, a miracle of the cosmos, a miracle beyond anything that anyone could ever imagine. Something that had never been done before in response to the prayers of His people. You know, God's still doing new things in the life of people all the time. God's doing things in your life and my life that He's never done in anyone else's life because God still hears and answers prayer. There's a third episode that we mentioned, the reception of the Babylonians. This is one of the great failures of Hezekiah's life. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was perfect in his heart towards the Lord in all things except in this, that God left him to try him and to see what would be in his heart. Hezekiah sadly failed the test. And this episode teaches us something of the folly of fellowship with the world. Think about what he received from them. The Bible says that they sent a letter and a gift. And isn't it funny? It wasn't the letter of threatening that undid Hezekiah. It was the letter of flattery that undid him. Sennacherib's letter, he knew what to do with. But Merodach Baladin's letter, he was duped by. You know, oftentimes... It's the compromise and fellowship with the world that undoes believers far more than the antagonism and open hostility of Satan against them. We are far more compromised by our friendships with the world than we are even by our own personal failures to be faithful. I see in this passage what he received from them, but then I see what he revealed to them. In response to this, he welcomes them into the house and he treats them as though they are family. Now somebody will say, well now preacher... I thought we're supposed to love sinners. We are supposed to love sinners. Preacher, I thought thought we're supposed to reach out to those that are broken and messed up and have sin-wrecked lives. We are supposed to. Listen, there is a difference between kindness and compassion and between taking people to our bosom and allowing them an entrance into our lives that nobody except the people of God should have. I'll tell you this, man. You can be friends with a lost person, but you can't have fellowship with them the way that you can with the people of God. 
And you better be careful with this game of, well, I'm going to try to do as the world and live as the world to try to reach the world. It's never happened. It is, listen, salt doesn't become useful by becoming like the sand. It becomes useful by retaining its salinity and its flavor. And it's the uniqueness, the proprietary nature of our testimony that makes a difference in this world. I see what he revealed to them. He showed them everything that he had in his house. And then I see what resulted from them being there. The Bible says that this would be the very thing that would prompt the Babylonians' attention to be turned towards Judah. If you were to fast forward some 150 years, you would find that there's another army that has laid siege to Jerusalem. But it is not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar stands outside the doors of Jerusalem, and this emperor will get in. He will go in and destroy. And I'm convinced with all my heart that the reason the Assyrians never got in is because Hezekiah never let them in. And that the reason that the Babylonians did get in is because Hezekiah did let them in. What a reminder it is in our life that Satan can't have any more place than we grant him. If we give him place in our life, he'll have place in our life. But if we don't grant it to him, he can't take it by force. We don't belong to him. We belong to the Lord. But if we give him space in our life, then he'll certainly barge right through the door. So there's a historic application of this that applies to us practically as believers. But this passage of Scripture not limited to just us merely looking and saying, do as Hezekiah does when it's good and refrain as doing as Hezekiah does when it's bad. No, the reason it's contained within the book of Isaiah is because it's part of a greater tapestry being woven concerning God's dispensational plan for Israel and for the world writ large. Man, remember where this book starts and where it ends. I know we're not to the end yet. But you understand, it starts in Israel's rebellion, and it ends in the millennial kingdom. It starts with it seeming as though man has made a mess of everything that God has planned, and it ends with God bringing to perfect culmination every step of His plan. This serves as sort of a microcosmic word picture. I'm the type of, when I read books, I like the ones that pop up in the middle. Amen? I need pictures in my books. It helps me. God is patient with people like me, and he puts a picture right in the middle of Isaiah to help me see the truth. You see, there's a prophetic application here. I told you to make note of words like remnant. You remember when he said, prayer for the remnant that is left. Well, the reason is because in God's economy and his plan for Israel as a nation, his plan is to, through a faithful remnant and through intense persecution during the Great Tribulation, bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, in these three episodes, we have pictures of tribulation truths and events that will happen to Israel as a nation during that seven years. For instance, think about the first episode. Rabshakeh is standing outside the gates of Jerusalem and blaspheming the name of the God of glory and threatening to destroy Israel as a nation. We could characterize it this way. He is the blasphemous man of sin that afflicted God's people. You know, the tribulation is also going to have a blasphemous man of sin that's going to afflict the nation of Israel. He's known more commonly as the Antichrist, the son of perdition. The Bible describes his defiance against God and his people. Rabshakeh stood there and spit defiance into the face of God, said, God can't rescue you. God can't save you. He is no God at all. You know that's exactly what the Antichrist will do during the tribulation. 
Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, meaning the day of the coming of the Lord, His glorious appearing, shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist will abolish all other world religions and consolidate them under the banner of himself as a deity. He will literally stand at the gates of Jerusalem and proclaim himself God in the defiance of the true God of heaven. The book of Daniel, when Daniel's talking about his 70 weeks, describes the sacrilege, the blasphemy of this act when he says this, that uh, for the overspreading of abominations... He, the Antichrist, shall make it desolate, meaning the temple. He will desecrate the temple, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Christ in the Gospel spoke about the abomination of desolation. There was certainly a time in the Old Testament uh, when a, uh, a Seleucid uh, king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and offered pig's blood on the altar uh, there in the brazen temple and desecrated the copies of the Word of God with the offage from that sacrifice. But all that just simply is a shadow and type of the man of sin who will go into the temple and desecrate it by abolishing the worship of God and declaring himself to be the true God. We see his defiance of God and his people. But not only that, in the midst of that, we find that God's people, we see their dependence upon God and on his promise. Hezekiah, remember, he is the federal head of the remnant. He is the man that is the representative of the kingdom and the nation of Judah. And what we find is that even in the midst of this onslaught, Hezekiah maintains his faith in God. Somebody will say, well, preacher... The nation of Israel is largely apostate today, and that's true. They reject the true God. But the Bible says that there is a remnant, always has been, always will be, even into the tribulation. They're described in the book of Revelation as the 144,000. Believe it or not, they're they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are witnesses for Jehovah, but they're not JWs, amen. And there will be a group of Jews during the tribulation period who believe on the Lord and, and, and trust in Him and in faith in Him maintain a true witness and light even in the nation of Israel. In the face of affliction and of assault, they maintain their faith in God. So we see there's the defiance of God and His people, just like the Antichrist will do. There's the dependence on God and His promises, just like the faithful remnant. This remnant here is foreshadowing the remnant that will exist in the tribulation period that are depending upon the Lord. But then how does it all end? It all ends when God, by the might and power of His Word, His sword, you know, the Word of the Lord is the sword of the Lord, right? By the power of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Remember, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a, is a theophany or a Christophany. It's Christ pre-Bethlehem being incarnate. The angel of the Lord shows up with his sword and slays the army. You know the exact same thing is going to happen during the tribulation period. Revelation chapter number 19 describes the Lord himself descending from heaven. Uh, describes how that he'll come with his vesture dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, riding upon a white horse. I don't know why that bothers some folks. I wouldn't care if he was riding on a horse of many colors. It wouldn't bother me. But he's riding upon a white horse, my Bible says, and returns literally, uh, visibly, physically. The Bible says that he has a sword proceeding out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, which is the Word of God. 
is in perfect keeping with how the Bible describes the Antichrist and his armies of being destroyed in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. It says this, And you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So here we have the blasphemous man of sin that afflicted God's people. But then there's a second episode, remember? There's Hezekiah, who is stricken with a sickness unto death. He's all but dead. He's proclaimed dead by God. But God in His mercy raises him up and restores to him his life. In this we find another tribulation picture. And it's of the federal head of the remnant that's raised from the dead. Israel in many ways is reckoned as dead. They as a nation, uh, the nation that exists today is, is in no way a semblance of the nation as God envisioned it. And they may exist as a nation, but they are certainly not the nation that God desires for them to be. Did you know in the Old Testament that Israel is described in various places, one of which will no doubt resonate in your mind, in Ezekiel chapter 37 as being a dead people. Ezekiel sees a vision of dry bones. And the Bible says this valley of dry bones is a picture of the nation of Israel. So here is Israel going into the tribulation period. They are spiritually dead aside from the remnant. They seem to be helpless and hopeless. Their imminent death is set forth. They're getting ready to be extinguished as a people once the Antichrist breaks the covenant and turns his destruction against them. So much so that Christ said in Matthew 24 that except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. In response to this, the Bible describes how that Israel during the tribulation period will in their affliction, in their angst, in their tribulation, cry out to God and seek Him for deliverance. Zechariah describes this scene in Zechariah 12, chapter number, or chapter 12, verse 8. It says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour upon the house, which by the way is another hearkening back to the situation that Hezekiah is in. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad-Dryman in the valley of Megiddo. You know where the valley of Megiddo is, right? It's the valley of Megiddo. It's Armageddon. In other words, when Christ comes back, they'll look on him whom they pierce. They'll look to the God that has answered their prayers. They'll believe on Him, and a nation will be born in a day, as Isaiah had prophesied. So there's His imminent death, His repentant prayer, and then the miraculous deliverance. Hezekiah is literally raised from a deathbed, given life again. It's a reminder of what God said in Ezekiel chapter number 37, when He said that this valley of dry bones were the house of Israel, all the house of Israel. And this is what the Lord said. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. 
Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. God says, I'm going to resurrect a dead, dry nation and give them spiritual life. Hosea spoke of this in Hosea chapter number 6, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us, he hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, in the third day he will raise us up, we shall live in his sight. Just as Hezekiah was raised up to walk in the sight of God. So remember three episodes. There is the blasphemous man of sin that afflicted God's people. There is the federal head of the remnant that is raised from the dead. But then there's this last episode. Hezekiah, he's representative of the house of Israel in many ways. And he welcomes in the Babylonians, the Gentile peoples, that they might come in and view his house. As a result of that treasure being opened unto them, the house of Israel is going to have to go through much affliction, bondage, and captivity. We have a flyover view in many ways of what the tribulation represents. Not just the events in it, but what it represents. The tribulation is the culmination of God's plan for the ages in regards to the epic or arc of human history. When you look at that story, it involves Israel in their rebellion, crucifying the Lord of glory, and then being set aside for a season while God builds a name or calls a name out and builds a church amongst the Gentile world. They are able to partake in the treasures that God had provided for Israel as a people spiritually, but which sadly they had rejected, treated lightly. And so the Gentiles are able to partake in it. But it's going to mean affliction, trial, and tribulation for the house of Israel. Three things that we see very quickly, and then we'll move to our last portion and be done. I didn't promise I'd get you out of here by eight. Don't pretend like I did, amen. But uh, first is the reaction to the testimony. The Gentiles hear how God has worked in Hezekiah's life, and they say, we've got to see and we've got to meet this God that has done this. Now you say, well, preacher, they had ulterior motives and this and that, and that very well may be true. But I would tell you this, that certainly the scene that we find at the close of the tribulation period is God gathering all nations unto himself. God permitting entrance into the kingdom of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, that will come unto him. We see their reaction to the testimony. They want to come and see what this God has done. We see the reception of the ambassadors. Hezekiah says, come on in and see all the things that God has blessed us with. And it's a picture of how the Gentiles will be brought in to that relationship at the end of the tribulation, in not just a spiritual sense, but in a literal sense. Isaiah had already spoken of this in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, when he said, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. So there was a cost associated with it. It would mean great pain and great suffering and great trial for the nation of Israel. It reminds me, and time would fail to say everything we'd love to about it, but y'all just read Romans 11 sometime and look at what all God would do and look at the perfection of His plan, look at how much He loves not just the Jews but even us Gentiles, in that through the casting off of Israel, life was given to the Gentile people. Through their rejection of the Messiah, salvation was offered to you and I as Gentile peoples. Paul would say it this way in verse number 11, I say then, have they, Israel, stumbled that they should fall? 
God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. He says in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. It's also interesting, the Babylonians uh, sacking Jerusalem would mark the beginning of what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. We are still living in the times of the Gentiles. And so, though the judicial blindness spiritually didn't really fall over Israel until they crucified the Lord of glory, it's certainly significant that even in Hezekiah's day, his opening his doors to the Babylonians harkens forth to a time of the Gentiles in which Israel would be set aside for a season that us Gentiles might be able to be partakers in the salvation of God. So there's a practical, historic application. There's a prophetic application. But finally, and I ain't even going to read hardly any Scripture, I'm just going to run through it, all right? We're just going to run through it. Get your running shoes on, we're going to run through it. There's a messianic application of these three stories. They don't just point to Israel, they point to Christ. And in many ways, Hezekiah in this passage is a type of Christ. Now, no type is perfect. He doesn't bear a perfect resemblance. But he is the son of David that is accomplishing the purpose and will of God concerning the nation and concerning God's plan for the world at large. How does he picture Christ? How do we see him looking like Christ? Well, we see that in him withstanding the foe. We see Rabshka coming and, and we see the railing of the enemy, his open hostility, mockery, and animosity towards the son of David. Certainly that was present in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But that was also present even at Calvary. Listen, the hosts of hell prevailed in their mind. They railed against Him. They mocked Him. They spit in His face. They plucked His beard. They laughed at His humiliation. They thought they had Him beat at the cross of Calvary. What did He do? Well, Peter says He, rather than answering back, committed His soul unto God as unto a faithful Creator. He, in faith to the Father, was faithful unto the very end. We see Hezekiah's response of faith to commit himself unto God in the very same way that Christ, instead of taking vengeance, committed himself to his Father, was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In response to this, there's a rumor that goes out that causes the enemy to retreat. I don't know about you, man, but that reminds me a, a message. You get it? A story went out. A story, a message. Some good news came that caused the enemy to have to retreat for a season. I think in many ways we have a picture of the gospel. The gospel, and we think of that term rumor, it has a connotation of doubt. There's no doubt to the gospel. But a message came forth that put the devil on his heels. That didn't stop him forever because one day he will, in power and in force, seek to take the reins of this world again. And we see the return of the menace. We see that he once again will bring conflict and a contest for this world's authority during the tribulation period. And what will the Lord do? Well, in power and in glory, He will answer and destroy the armies of the Antichrist. He's a picture in withstanding the foe. But then also in Hezekiah's resurrection, we have a picture of the resurrection of Christ. He is a type of, of Christ in waking from the dead. It's interesting when you think about why Hezekiah was stricken. We don't know what the exact sin was, but it seems apparent from Scripture that it was because of some sin that God condemned or put a death sentence upon Hezekiah. He was dying because of sin in his life. Now, Lord Jesus Christ was sinless. He did no sin. He knew no sin, and in Him was no sin. It's very true. 
But when He went to the cross of Calvary, it was because God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He didn't just bear your sin, He became your sin. He hung upon the tree, cursed of God, because cursed is everyone that hangeth upon the tree. He became the curse for us. We see Jesus condemned upon the cross, but then we see His supplication. Hezekiah, once again, he commits himself to God. He prays and seeks the Lord. He submits himself to God's will and God's desire. He turns to the Father. He turns to God. And God, in response to that, raises him from the death sentence that was resting upon him. What a picture this is of Jesus Christ. He was not a sinner, but He became sin for us. They're hanging upon the cross. What did He do? Well, He prayed unto the Father. He said, into Thy hand do I commend My Spirit. He committed Himself to God as unto a faithful Creator. God, in response, did what? Did a miracle of the heavens, just like He did with Hezekiah. With Hezekiah, He turned the sundial backwards. With Christ, He blotted the sun out and dealt with our sins. And then you remember we talked about Hezekiah's comment when he said that uh, because of his love, I was trying to find it here in our text, verse 17 of chapter 38, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Just like the psalmist said of the coming son of David, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Thou wilt not suffer my soul to see corruption. How did God do that? Well, in Hezekiah's case, He cast all of Hezekiah's sins behind His back. But in Christ's case, He says this, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that, God dealt with our sin and made a way for us to know Him. So He's a picture in withstanding the foe and in well, well, excuse me, waking from the dead, but He's also a picture of Christ in welcoming the Gentiles. Remember that the ministry of Jesus Christ was largely and primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We find little glimpses, though, of the broader, larger ministry of extending the salvation of the gospel to Gentiles as well as Jews. We see it in the life of Jesus. For instance, think about who Hezekiah received. The Babylonians, the Gentiles, the godless. And did you know that we also find Gentiles being drawn to Jesus all throughout His life? They attended Him after His birth. The men from the east came. We know it was some two, three years after His birth. But they likely set out on their journey when He was born. They attended Him after His birth. John chapter number 12 tells us they approached Him before His death. Certain Greeks came to Philip and said, we would see Jesus. Not only that, but they accepted Him after His resurrection. The church today is largely a Gentile affair. God will save any Jew that will come to Him in faith. But it's largely a Gentile affair, the New Testament church is. What did He do when He brought them into the house? Well, He showed them all the wonderful treasures that He had. And what a picture of what God has done in Jesus Christ. For us, He revealed all the riches of God unto us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We've entered into the very riches of Jesus Christ. He's shown us the whole treasure house. But think about what it required. It required His own people going through tribulation, 
suffering, angst, and affliction. But in the perfect economy and plan of God, it was all worth it that He might bring both Jew and Gentile alike into one body and one man in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we read this little historical portion of Isaiah, you say, Preacher, that ain't got nothing to do with the rest of Isaiah. It has everything to do with the rest of Isaiah. In it, for us ignorant people like me, God has painted a picture of what He's doing. 